All right, welcome to episode 27 of 52 Founders. I'm your host, Chrissy Costa, and this week we are back in Madison with Luke Bonney, founder and CEO of Redox, the modern API for healthcare that simplifies integration and facilitates sophisticated data exchange between organizations. I'd asked for an introduction to Luke after I discovered and quickly fell in love with Redox because there is so much room for improvement in healthcare. Talking with him made me realize that Madison is the ideal place to foster innovation in this space. I'm excited for you all to learn more as to why that is. And with that, here's Luke. All right, well, Luke, thanks so much for being on my show today. So excited to have you. Thanks for coming up to Madison. Yeah, I love Madison. Um, even though Max and Ben will pretend I don't, that I keep big city girl. <laughs> uh, so start by telling us about your background and the idea for Redux, what it is. Absolutely. So my background, I grew up in upstate New York, which um, if you look at where I grew up, Geneva, New York, on a map, Madison, Wisconsin, and Geneva, New York are basically on exactly the same uh, latitudinal line. So I, I just moved directly west. So you like this weather. <laughs> I you lo- really love the climate. I just love the climate <laughs> at this uh, particular uh, uh, location. But um, I graduated school in 2008. I was uh, at Cornell. And as you guys know, in 2008, the job market was uh, changing drastically and not in a good direction. <laughs> so my, my job search uh, opened up a little bit at that point. And it was at that time I had been pre-med, but had also really fallen in love with technology and software. Um, it was at that point a friend of mine said, hey, you should check out this company on Madison called Epic. Um, they do this, these things called electronic medical records. It's out in Wisconsin. I didn't know what any of these things meant. I mm-hmm. couldn't put Wisconsin on a map. <laughs> um, but flew out, took an interview, and ended up falling in love with the place. So um, uh, ended up spending six years there. That's where I met both James Lloyd, our CTO, and, and Nico. Um, and Nico just goes by first name. He's first name size at this point. Okay. Okay. Just Nico. Just Nico. He's also a musician. <laughs> That's right. Uh, he just dropped his first single. No, I'm kidding. Um, met those guys. Uh, James is obviously, he, he was a developer on the integration team. Nico did more strategy work. Um, what was called a staffer and worked with Sumit and a couple of the other kind of executives back there. The three of us met each other as part of that small group of people who were doing entrepreneurial things within a really large organization. Mm-hmm. So we were, we were trying to solve problems that uh, we saw but didn't necessarily have uh, authority um, from those who were running everything. So we met, got to know each other. James and Nico actually left first um, they were each pursuing their own activities, whether it be consulting, starting their own companies, stepped into the Madison startup scene. And the first thing they did was they actually realized that there was a piece to the Madison ecosystem that was missing. And that was really, there was no center of gravity for the um, entrepreneurial scene. There was a lot of great people doing a lot of great things, but they weren't able to take advantage of each other and build community. So they ended up founding with a couple other people what is now called 100 State. And 100 State is now, I think it's the largest co-working space in Wisconsin. It's north of 350 people. Um, And they spent a year doing their own projects and and watching that grow. I got involved when they started to see that 30 to 40% of the people coming through 100 State were people who used to work at Epic. Mm -hmm. And um, 
you know, we, the three of us kind of came together around this question of, we have Madison, we have the super high density, we have this great university with really great engineering and computer science programs, and now we have uh, a growing uh, healthcare IT company in Epic that, just like all these other stories, is starting to spin off really smart um, employees. So we asked the question, how come Madison isn't the hub for healthcare IT? Yeah. Uh, and our answer was to start what we called 100 Health which was basically an incubator for really early stage health tech companies. And our goal was to start as many companies in Madison as we possibly could. Our thinking being, we have the raw materials, all we need to do is prove people, prove to people that this is a place you could do it. Um, which in retrospect is just like so foolishly naive. <laughs> but it was great. We ended up starting seven different companies. Um, we ended up working, they had different founders, different ideas, it was all about shipping product, getting early customers, getting early employees, getting mm -hmm. in front of angel investors. Uh, we did that for 10 months. Redox came out of that experience. What we realized is that each of those seven companies were gonna have exactly the same problem, which is to scale effectively, they needed to be able to share data with their customers, mm -hmm. i.e. health systems. Um, so the whole concept with Redox came from this idea, could we empower any web developer in the world to build an awesome integrated application in a way that made sense to them. Mm -hmm. um, and that was really the genesis of Redox. And so how do you get buy-in from both sides if you're doing that? Yeah, so there's, it's it's very, you know, when you look at our model right now, you can, you can definitely conceptualize it as a two-sided market. You have third-party applications and vendors on one side, you have health systems on the other side. And James Lloyd, our CTO, actually wrote a great article, uh, uh, I think it's titled, Building a Two-Sided Network. So our whole question at the very beginning was, who do you sell to first, right? You know, where can yeah, we add value to? Chicken egg exactly. Yeah. So we actually tested it. Um, when we decided to to start Redox, one of the first things we did is we cold called thirty uh, uh, healthcare IT startups, CTOs and CEOs, and we basically said, hey, if we built this thing, if we built a platform where your team could connect once, and then we could help you integrate with any EMR, any health system world, would you buy it? And uh, within like 24 hours, we got like an 85 to 90% hit rate. So we were like, holy crap, urgent problem, top of list. Mm -hmm. They were all like, build this right now, please, yeah. <laughs> for my business. We also tested on the health system side. And we talked to CIOs, we talked to these folks, and they basically said, get in line. Great idea. Um, it's a 12 to 18 month sales cycle. Health systems, you know, large health healthcare organizations don't really understand platforms. Right? They're still in the world of on-prem, um, outside of an, uh, uh, an enterprise EMR, you have point solutions, they don't really understand SaaS. Um, so we said very early on, you know, we could sell to applications and vendors, they connect to Redox once, and then each time they sell into a new organization, we're going to enable them. Right? We're going to plug in that pipe, we're going to normalize that data for them. So we are building this network. But the economics really make a ton of sense for the applications and vendors. It's an urgent problem. It slows them down. It's a talent question. Um, do they need to hire these really rare types of people that who could otherwise do this for them? So um, we figured that out pretty early on. Now, being two and a half years into it, there's also an interesting question, which is as we build authority, as we build brand and presence, we now have large health organizations who are coming to us saying mm -hmm. the last 10 um, applications I've talked to are all using Redox as an integrator. Wouldn't it make sense for us to have a direct enterprise relationship? Yeah. And 
we are way more excited to engage in those conversations. Yes. <laughs> we can skip a few steps. Um, so that's kind of how that, that, that's worked out. And APIs are probably my favorite business model. Yeah. So you do so many API calls. <laughs> yeah. Well, but the price is so low, so it looks great. I mean, the whole idea with, with, our, with our platform is we want to build infrastructure that can enable, you know, very obvious uh, problems, but also, you know, when you build a, a platform and you build a set of tools that developers can use and can kick the tires in uh, on their own, you start to see people build things that you could never imagine. Mm -hmm. And that's really where it gets, you know, for me, it gets really exciting when somebody walks in the door and they, they say, hey, we've been checking out your stuff for the last six months. We built this MVP and now we're starting to sell it, so we need to talk to somebody. And it's like, holy crap, that is cool. Yeah, no, that is cool. I mean, that's why I'm working on it. You get to see businesses built on top of your that's right. stuff, which is exciting. Very cool. Um, so let's now focus on you. So you grew up in... Northern New York. <laughs> I'm from New York, and I'm like Northern New York. Yeah. Um, what did your parents do for a living? Yeah. Um, so my dad is a third generation attorney. Okay. Uh, small town. So he inherited a practice from his father, and it's never been more than two attorneys. So it's literally like who walks in off the street. Uh, my brother, my younger brother, finished law school two years ago and is now working with. I was like, me. is it called Bonnie and Sons? <laughs> it's not called Bonnie and Bonnie. It was just previously Bonnie Law Firm. Okay. <laughs> um, but he, uh, you know, my my dad, um, that sort of environment means integrity and ethics are like front of mind all the time mm -hmm. uh, when it's a small town. And when you are uh, acting as an attorney where you're solving problems for friends, family, friends of friends, uh, it was always super clear that you have to do what's right even when it's wrong, or even when, it, even when it's hard. You have to do what's right even when it's hard. Um, so that, that was, I think, that's been easy to translate into the rest of my life, and, and that kind of muscle memory was built in early. My mom, um, she's got a background in... Um, childhood development, early child development, mm. and nutrition. And she's done, she's had a number of different jobs uh, since, since I've been born, but it's mostly been focused on, at first it was, she was one of the first people to bring hospice into the region. Um, then she did a whole bunch of work with early moms around, uh, young moms, single moms, uh, educating them on finances and nutrition. Um, and now she's working with Cornell Cooperative Extension where they're doing statewide experiments on the design of cafeterias and where you put food and how that drives choices with, with children. So um, my parents from a very early age, it was always about hard work and, and, and being, um, being honest and, and ethical. Um, my childhood was, uh, <laughs> I grew up playing music, so I grew up playing violin and then started a band in high school. Uh, but mostly sports. A violin band? <laughs> no. I started with violin, and That's then a like, bunch of us... <laughs> yeah. That's what you think of in the garage. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> a bunch of us who grew up playing uh, kind of classical music ended up picking up guitars and basses oh, uh, more in typical. high school. Okay. That's right. Um, but most of my childhood was uh, school and then sports. So I was um, uh, soccer in the fall, hockey in the winter, and lacrosse in the spring. Oh, nice. So I was, was lacrosse, too. Lax bra. Um, <laughs> That's so right. I didn't mean any lax bras until I went no to college. No lax bras, <laughs> yeah. Um, so what did you originally want to be when you grew up? When I was really little, I 
I really, really, really wanted to be either a zoologist. <laughs> yeah, right. So I, I, I have a stack of uh, Ranger Rick. I don't know if you remember that magazine. Yeah. <laughs> like, like six years of Ranger Ricks. Um, and then I wanted to be a wildlife photographer. And then in late middle school, early high school, through half, you know, part of the way through college, I really wanted to be a doctor. I love oh, life, wow. sci- life sciences. Um, was always really interested in biology um, and just how the human body worked. Um, and basically, the, the unfortunate thing that happened is, is sometime in college, I really asked the question of what's life like as a doctor. And um, I wasn't convinced that as a 22-year-old, I was ready to accept that life as a doctor is what I wanted to be. You know, what I wanted yeah, to I know what you mean. I think the idea of being a doctor in theory is really interesting. And now that I have a lot of friends that are doctors, um, yeah. They would also, a lot of them would discourage me from being a doctor. <laughs> yeah, well, when you, when you looked at the environment and then you looked at, you know, I was getting more and more interested in, in technology, you said, how could I have the most impact? And, and when I looked at Epic, you know, Epic has had massive impact in, in, in the U.S. Um, through simply digitizing what was otherwise paper processes. And it's mm-hmm. really the very early stages. So, um, you know, that question of can you do good, uh, I think there's tons of ways you can do good. Well, did you ever, when did you then first start thinking about entrepreneurship as a career? In college, I got involved in this organization called ISEC, which is an international organization all about student exchange. The way it works is you have chapters at universities all across the world. I think there's like 800 chapters. And each local uh, chapter goes and contracts with businesses in their city that then accepts interns from all over the world. And you basically host those interns for six to 18 months. So we we helped start that at Cornell. And one of the first things you have to do is figure out what are you selling and how do you sell it to to local businesses. What we found at Cornell is the the thing that we had that the network wanted was high-class engineers, you know, world-class engineers. So we ended up signing a contract with the engineering school to manage their co-op program for certain sorts of engineers, sending them to Europe, sending them to uh, parts of Asia, North Africa. So in college, I kind of got like this bug of what's it like to kind of start from something very small and build it into something. By the time we left, you know, I said Cornell was 50 plus people. Um, so that's where the seed got planted. When I was at Epic, it was basically like, you know, the reason I ended up leaving Epic is because my, my kind of development curve was was flatlining. Mm-hmm. And I looked at the skills I had, the opportunity. I had a little bit of money in my savings account. And I said, if I don't start a business, if I don't give this a shot right now, it's going to be on the far side of children. It's going to be on the far, you know, it's going to be 20, 30 years down the line before I'm really uh, able to separate myself and take a swing for the fences. So I'd say the, ple- the seed got planted in college and then the opportunity really arose uh, after being at Epic. So was it your founders, your or future co-founders leaving that really made you think like, okay, now I should leave too. Um, it wasn't their leaving. It was, it was the coming together in August of 2014 when they said, they, they, they had been thinking, you know, there is this amazing opportunity to do something here in Madison. Um, I was already looking around and saying, what's the opportunity that I'm ready to jump into? And it was those things kind of, kind of coming together that moment I was I was ready to get out they had an opportunity you know we 
there's actually an idea that I had been thinking about totally separately, but they, they verbalized it in a way that was really attractive. And then I got to know those guys a little bit better. And it's like, these two dudes are really special. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was really the, the, the impetus. So what advice would you give people to pick when picking your co-founders? Um, <laughs> I know this doesn't sound like great advice, but I, people asking this question, I, I, my true response is I feel really, really lucky. and like um, I think picking co-founders is like the hardest there's all these you can read about it you can you can ask people about it everybody has their own approach at the end so what we were able to do with 100 health is basically experiment with seven like other companies before deciding to work on redox and it was a little bit of a vetting process, you could call it, for mm-hmm. us, the three of us, to get to know each other and understand our working styles. So in some ways, we had you know basically a year lead-in to say, is this still the right group when we were thinking about you know what what ended up becoming Redox? The biggest piece of advice, and it's I hate using the word advice, but the thing that underlies our ability, at least to this point, is you have to have the hard conversations even when it's uncomfortable. It's really about trust. And the three of us don't see eye to eye on everything, but I, I think that the interesting thing is we are willing to talk about it even if it's emotionally difficult to talk about it. If you harbor things, it becomes, you know, it builds resentment. And I, I really think that's where shit starts to break down. That makes really good sense. Um, really good sense. <laughs> no, but honestly, I think that level of trust is an element I keep hearing, especially because if you did agree with each other all the time also, that would be a signal maybe you're not the best co-founder if you want to find a balance between that. Um, So then we're talking about advice. What is the worst piece of advice you've received and did you ignore it? Uh, uh, My brain isn't big enough to remember bad advice. I don't know. There's so much bullshit out there uh, focused at, at entrepreneurs. Um, I think the worst advice is is advice that's semi-informed. Um, what I mean by that is is when you start, once you get an idea and you start to build a team, there's going to be a, a cacophony of people who think they understand what's best for you and your business. And it took me a little while to realize this, but the people who are working at your company every single day, you and your founders and and anybody else, you have 100% the absolute absolute most data that is relevant to the success of your company. And anybody's advice should be considered and weighted versus all of the data you have. Because nobody else sees the the minutia that that you consider every single day. You're the only one who can't sleep you know, who's up late at night and up early in the morning. So there's, there's no piece of advice that by itself um, should be actionable until you incorporate it. Um, and I, you know, great people to work with, i.e. great investors and great advisors, know that. And the way they deliver advice and feedback is through that, through that lens. So that's kind of a sidestep to your question. <laughs> no, no, I, I appreciate that. I think... What's interesting to me about entrepreneurship is, um, you know, when do you finally learn to trust your gut and be like, no, I, I think right. we're doing this right. Cause yeah. you do hear a lot of noise in the beginning. Absolutely. I mean, 
what, one of the things that I think is just so critical is, especially as you start to scale, is the steps that you think about when you're looking to go from you know today to maximizing revenue tomorrow, maximizing growth tomorrow, and the team dynamic, the you know mm-hmm. you know the seats on the bus, who who's sitting in them, how you're organized. Um, it feels like you can go from zero to hyper growth overnight because that's what you read about. Um, but I think really focusing on and reading about and understanding the course, the core things that must be in place to enable growth, understanding your pipeline and understanding how, how deals flow through your pipeline or understanding if you're a consumer product, you know, what does that onboarding process look like? You, you can't just throw money at a problem until you actually understand your business. Yeah. Um, and understanding your business is really hard if you're doing something new that no one's ever done before. Uh, so I think that's the first place where I've, I've felt myself pushing back is a little bit of, you know, we need to figure this out if we throw more bodies or more money at this problem right now, it's actually going to slow us down more than helping us speed up. That's, so that's, that's really smart. I think I see that a lot happening. Um, that people think more people on the team, you don't have enough people figuring it out, and sometimes maybe you have too much yep. people figuring it out. But, <laughs> but it's so easy to chase you know, yes. those problems first without taking a step back. I think there's a level of urgency that you feel you need to have, but perhaps it's better to be more thoughtful. Yeah. Um, if you can't predict what that next hire is going to bring in the next six months to 12 months, even ballpark, um, that's not to say that you shouldn't hire them, but it, it's, it, it should mean if, you know, are you hiring them to solve a different problem? Are you hiring them to open up a new line of business? Um, you know, just ask yourself those questions. Yeah. It's really easy to hire great people uh, once you hit 20, 30, 30 uh, team members and, and not really understand what the expected impact could be. Right. Well, and that's how you burn through your cash. You're just like, what is one more person? That's right. We want to hire smart people. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. No, I agree with that. Um, all right, we're going to move to the fun questions of the round. Okay. So what is another Midwest startup you really love? <laughs> well. Um, oh, you're pointing to my <laughs> Max and the team up at, at Ionic, I think, is, is super awesome. It's awesome because they're a super, a super tech-focused, um, also platform-focused. Yeah. And the, the problem they solve, I think, is super fascinating and also the fact that they're doing it in Madison, I think, tells a great story. So um, they're one of them, if not the one that I'm, I'm super excited about, at least here in Madison. I'm a little biased, I think. <laughs> yeah, um, right. And they're also super great people. So. <laughs> I like them a little bit. No, uh, I agree. I think I didn't realize the level of talent from an engineering perspective that were coming out yeah. of Madison. Yeah. I, um, especially being from the coast. You know, exactly. You're used to like ignoring the rest of the country exactly. when you're from New York. I tell people all the time, had, had I known about University of Wisconsin at Madison when I was in high school, um, it would have been one of the top schools on my list. Mm-hmm. When I when you look at the, the types of you know STEM programs, they're, they're top in, in the country. The, the cost of admission and also just the student life like <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty amazing what you can do here uh, so uh, I think Madison at a, at a national level is is uh, way under recognized yeah of the potential it has yeah that's what I've realized about living in the Midwest in general like I didn't know about the University of Illinois for um, yeah engineering as well yeah absolutely so okay so what other areas of tech do you really see taking off this year 
this year. Or what really, what really excites you in other industries? So one of the, and this comes from, uh, I really got into genomics, genetics, um, and a lot of what they call human sociobiology. So it's basically studying human behavior through models developed with evolutionary biology in mind. Um, so I've always been, you know, pretty tight to what's going on in the genetic and genomic space. Mm-hmm. Um, it's still super early days, but uh, all the work there is super fascinating. I think there's incredible potential and also like these super interesting ethical questions. Yeah. What you should and should not do. I agree. The fact that the U.S. is... Um, still the hub but there's so much other research going on in places all over the world where you you not only are asking these ethical questions but you're saying like it's probably going to happen anyway uh when it comes to applying CRISPR technology to human embryos and things like this so it's that's super interesting everybody's of course talking about machine learning and and AI I think that's one of these waves that is going to change the way business gets done we're already starting to see it almost as a you know offered as a service through yeah. people like AWS and, and Google. Definitely. Um, so that, that's that's interesting. But genomics is, is really the, the big other thing. And then the final thing is just generally speaking, what our society looks like um, with all of this connectivity and data online. And so you could call this like the security question of how do we secure all this stuff. But I think the trend that's really interesting is, is how do you start to equalize this, what do I share, what is still private? And we, we definitely don't know what that is yet as a society, like what is in the public domain, yeah. what is not, what is, what is secure, what can I assume is secure, what is not. Well, I'd imagine for you that's especially important with healthcare. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so we're, we're locked up as tight as you can possibly be, but more from a personal standpoint, um, you know, when we think about healthcare 10 years from now, um, what are people going to want to do with their healthcare data, right? Like that, that's kind of the question that, that's really interesting. And that again is much more of a societal question that's going to play out over time. And it could go in many different directions looking where we are today and where that could, you know, where we could be five to 10 like what? I don't think I understand. What would people want to do with their data? Um, what would it mean for it to be very transparent? Mm-hmm. Um, what would it mean for uh, you to be able to sell your data, to be able to contribute your data? What would it mean for, uh, you know, for, for, or, you know, the alternative is what would it be for it to be under lock and key and for it to be, you know, only very certain people at certain moments have, have access to that data. It's funny because um, I feel like with 23 and me they had that scandal about security and right. people were giving their, my brother got it for both my grandmas for Christmas as a gift. <laughs> um, but then we, we read about that. And it was so interesting to me that you're really giving people access to yeah. your DNA. And, and when I say that it could go in many different directions, um, the government has a role to play, right? So right now there is a question of does, you know, do employers have, the right to look at your genetics? Do insurance companies have the right to look at, you know, risk, you know, your risk profile at some point in the future based on your genomic profile and price insurance policies differently? Same for life insurance. 
And that's what I mean when we could go in very different directions as a society based on um, what it means to, to grant access and who can, who can discriminate or who can mm-hmm. use that information yeah. to impact you. Um, so those, I, I don't know. I, really no, like I, I find that really it. interesting as well. Yeah. And then so finally, who, if you could interview one founder, who would you most want to interview and why? I'm becoming, like over the past two months, I'm, I'm like becoming a super fanboy of Jeff Bezos. Um, Everyone says Jeff Bezos. <laughs> well, so Jeff, or Elon Musk. So Elon Musk is just fucking crazy, as far as I can tell. <laughs> like he, you, you can read about him, but like trying to be him, I don't think is a reasonable, <laughs> like a reasonable place to be. The thing that is interesting about Bezos is if you look at the resilience of an organization, it's really hard to imagine one that's more resilient than Amazon. Hmm. Um, when you look at where they started, where you look at they are where they are today, like he 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 recently released the the nineteen ninety seven shareholder letter, yeah, and it's the the principles he's been putting to work and that he has built into the DNA of the organization, um, you can't help but be really really impressed with with what he's been able to do and almost twenty years later twenty years later yeah. and you look at the things they're they're doing today and making money and you know driving revenue off of today. You can see how it goes from first principle to where they are, but it would have been almost impossible to predict it, right? Like, where the fuck did AWS come from? Well, when you're obsessed with service and lowering price yeah. and, you know, driving technology forward, then you can see how this, this comes to be. Um, so perhaps it's Jeff Bezos, perhaps it's just some of the things that he's put to work over time at AWS or at Amazon. I mean, I think that's a really interesting answer to him, though. So I do get him a lot, but I, I'm I less, I'm less like fascinated by like his management style and his personality, and more just like what's the model that he's put mm-hmm. to work. Yeah. Well, that's a wrap, and thank you so that's much for being on our show. Awesome, thanks for having me. All right, and that's a wrap on Madison's startup Redux. Be sure to check out 52founders.com and follow us on Twitter at 52founders to stay up to date. I'm your host, Chrissy Costa, and I'll see you next week for another episode.